The Water Values Podcast, Session 33. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things. Now here's your host, Dave McGibson. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. Thanks for joining me. For those of you who are new to the Water Values Podcast, welcome. And yes, that's my son Joey providing the intro. Listen all the way through to the end to hear his outro and the all-important disclaimer. I am a practicing lawyer, so that disclaimer is very important. So it was great being in Fort Lauderdale last week for the National Association of Water Companies Annual Water Summit. I had the privilege of moderating a panel on the Safe Drinking Water Act with Charles Fishman, the author of The Big Thirst, Dennis Dahl, the CEO of Middlesex Water, who did a fantastic job filling in at the last minute, Jessica Gaudreau, the chief of the North Carolina Public Water Supply Section, and Tracy Meehan, the Source Water Protection Coordinator for the U.S. Endowment for Forestry and Communities and the former U.S. EPA Assistant Administrator for Water. It was a terrific panel with valuable insight shared by each panelist, and I'm working with the great folks at the NAWC to see if we can get the audio recording for a future podcast. Well, while in Fort Lauderdale, it was also great meeting some of you who enjoy the podcast. Thanks for reaching out. I always love connecting with you. On to today's podcast, and this one's for iTunes reviewer Wally from Colorado, who wanted to hear about augmentation plans in Colorado. Sorry it took so long, Wally, but I uncovered the best guy I could find on this topic, Dave Nettles. Dave is the division engineer for Water Division 1 in the Colorado Division of Water Resources. Dave brings a long history with Colorado water and a strong working knowledge of how things actually work out in the field. He really has a gravitas in this area, so prepare to be enlightened by him. He's fantastic, and this is a great discussion for those who aren't even in Colorado or who aren't even in a prior appropriation state, it's a great opportunity to learn about how one aspect of water works out in the West. With that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Dave, thanks very much for coming on to the Water Values Podcast. We greatly appreciate your time. Uh, to start off, why don't you tell us a little about your background and how you got interested in water? Sure thing, Dave, and, and thank you for inviting me. Um, yeah, my background is is actually I grew up in a in a small town down in Louisiana, and, and got my bachelor's degree from Louisiana Tech University in in agricultural engineering and in in ag engineering. Um, certainly, in and that was in the late seventies, early eighties. Uh, you could specialize in several different areas, and um, I. Uh, took a class in groundwater, hydrology and hydraulics, and found that subject fascinating, just really enjoyed it. And so that that kind of got me going into water. Uh, and then uh, when I got my BS in 1982, the economy wasn't in the best of shape, uh, but I, so I went ahead and applied to Colorado State University for, uh, to, for grad school. And, and got accepted in the ag engineering program at, at CSU. So then I, I came up to Colorado and, and got my master's uh, with a focus on groundwater, but also water quality. Uh, and then then after that, got uh, got a job with the state engineer's office, started in, in water quantity and, and water rights and that sort of thing. So 
And so, you know, everything just worked out pretty well from there to uh, to stay in Colorado and, and work primarily in, in water rights, uh, water quantity rather than than water quality. And, and that's, uh, you know, that, that just led, uh, spent about five years in our Denver office doing a lot of work on groundwater, but also some surface water, and that led me when there was a position open in the, the Division One field office for the South Platte Basin, um, I I applied for that position, and and now I've been up here for oh boy, 22 years now, <laughs> uh, working both on groundwater and surface water, and and uh, you know that sort of thing. So so that's kind of I guess my background in a nutshell. Okay, and you said a couple interesting things there that I don't I don't know that everyone people outside of Colorado may not know about. Okay. And so, and and so, I want to, uh, to to ask you to expand a lot on the, the what the South Platte Basin is, and what you know. You said mentioned Division One, Water Division One. What what are those, and how do they fit into the to the the greater background on Colorado water law? Sure, sure, I'd be happy to do that. Yeah, um, Colorado uh, for water regulation or administration purposes is is broken up. Uh, into seven different divisions based on on uh, major river drainages and in water division one uh, the major drainages are are the South Platte River uh, as well as the Republican River and and the Laramie River which is a much smaller drainage but the water division one really encompasses pretty much the northeastern quarter of, of Colorado kind of from the Continental Divide um, or at least uh, the divide between the North Platte and the South Platte, um, and then uh, then the, just that northeast quarter. The other major divisions are Water Division Two, which is primarily the Arkansas Basin, uh, Water Division Number Three, primarily the San Luis Valley, the Rio Grande headwaters. Uh, Water Division Four is is the Gunnison River Basin, one of the major tributaries to the Colorado. Uh, water division number five is is the main stem of the Colorado from the headwaters and in uh, Colorado till it crosses into Utah. Uh, water division six is the North Platte and then the uh, Yampa and White Rivers, another couple of major tributaries into the the Colorado River. And then then water division seven is is a number of, of different basins down in the southwest quarter of the state that that all eventually uh, end up in the Colorado, but the, the San Juan, the Dolores, a, a number of, of river basins down there. So uh, Colorado is, is divided up that way, both for administration and then, then in terms of, of our water law. Colorado is um, a prior appropriation doctrine state, uh, basically meaning first in time, first in right, um, as opposed to say, much of the eastern part of the, the U.S., where it's a riparian doctrine based on proximity to the stream. Um, and also in those seven uh, water divisions are seven uh, specialized civil courts called water courts. And, and they, uh, at least in those courts, deal exclusively with water matters, uh, primarily water rights matters. Um, th- those judges certainly do other sorts of civil, uh, of civil and, and criminal law, but uh, 
But yeah, those courts uh, deal with water rights, both uh, granting water rights and, and um, if if uh, we have a uh, a situation that requires uh, enforcement, uh, that's that's where we go. We, the division engineer in Colorado has the ability to issue orders to uh, cease diverting water, for example, when you're out of priority or if you were using water for a, a purpose other than that was for which it was decreed. For example, water rights decrees may be for irrigation uses, and if someone began using that for an industrial or municipal purpose without going to court for, for a change of water right or change of use to change that to those desired uses, um, then we would, would order that use that non-decreed used to be ceased, and if, if that wasn't done, uh, we would then have to file an injunction in the water court and, and seek an order from the court to, to enforce that non-decreed use. You're now the division engineer, and so what, do, what is your typical day like? What are you, what are you out doing uh, in, in the water field? Well, uh, unfortunately, most of my days these, uh, these days seem to be tied up with with uh, administration and, and primarily in the office or, or certainly in meetings. Um, uh, you know, a lot of what I do is uh, meet with water users when there is a, a question related to administration. Um, you know, someone uh, may want to do something, we'll say, new or different. Um, we have a lot of a lot of very smart people in Colorado uh, trying to figure out how to, to maximize a very limited resource, both physically and legally. And, and so I spend uh, time in meetings or on the phone chatting with folks about, uh, you know, just what my thoughts on, on their uh, approach, uh, a new approach maybe, or our, our actual field staff who are out on the ground um, you know, checking water rights and, and making day-to-day -day, uh, regulation decisions. And, and so I spend a lot of time um, working with folks on, on those kinds of issues. Um, and then, you know, the normal kind of budget, those kind of uh, personnel-type issues that, that, that come with, with supervising, you know, close to 50 people now um, for, for Water Division One. In terms of the the folks that do go out in the field, what are they typically typically doing? How are they how are they managing the, this Colorado water system that you described? Okay, the the water commissioners typically, especially during the irrigation season, um, we we now have a what we call the satellite monitoring system. It's a, a network of both stream gauges and then uh, remote uh, reporting. Uh, registers from many of the major water diverters. And so uh, typically our water commissioners will, will get up pretty early in the morning because that's, that's when a lot of ag folks get going. Um, and they will be looking at the stream gauges uh, to determine the available supply. And then um, they will either uh, begin getting phone calls or in some cases emails. But basically they'll begin uh, contacting or being contacted by the, their water users and, and figuring out uh, or learning what the demand will be for that day, what folks 
uh, operations folks have plans. For example, if if somebody's going to be planning a, a reservoir delivery using the stream, um, so they'll begin to to look at that and spend the first uh, few hours doing what we call setting the river or, or determining the available supply, uh, the uh, the desired amount or demand, and then trying to balance uh, the, the, the supply to the demand to keep the most junior right uh, possible diverting um, as much as, as possible within their decreed right. So, so really trying to, to maximize or optimize the beneficial use uh, of the waters of the state for, for the citizens. So, so that'll be kind of the first part of their day. Um, and after that, they'll also be dealing with, uh, with general questions from the public, um, as well as, as actually physically going out, um, looking at, at measuring devices, because, you know, we all, remote reporting is wonderful and, and it saves us a, a ton of time. We certainly couldn't do the job with the number of people we have without that. But um, they also, uh, the commissioners after a year or two get a very good feel for, uh, based on streamflow, what things should look like. And, and often, you know, they'll see a, what, what may appear to be an anomalous reading. And so they'll go out and, and make sure, for example, everything is set right. Um, if it's a plume, is you know, uh, is something going on with the plume that, that's throwing the reading off? Is is there something with uh, the recorder or the the reporting device? Um, and, and so they'll spend, you know, probably at least half of most of their days out in the field, uh, both checking those things and then. Um, just generally uh, keeping an eye on things, making sure uh, folks are are doing what they're sh they're supposed to be doing. Because, like in any uh, regulatory business, 90 plus percent of the people will will do the right thing. They know the rules; they'll follow them. Uh, but you know, you have that other less than 10 percent probably that you you kind of have to keep an eye on just to make sure. Uh, things are working the way they should be. Sure. And I think that kind of leads into now um, talking about augmentation plans. As, as, as Dave, you know, uh, we had a listener request uh, a podcast dedicated to augmentation plans in Colorado. And so I think you've laid a very good foundation for us to now talk about those. Uh, and so first off, can you tell us what an augmentation plan is? Sure. I'd be happy to. Um, basically, where we are in Colorado is is a number of, of our river basins, especially the South Platte, the Arkansas, and the uh, Rio Grande, uh, as well as parts of many of the other basins are considered fully appropriated or over-appropriated, meaning many uh, months of the year uh, there is not sufficient water to meet the demand uh, that folks would like to place to the place that water to. And um, we also have, especially in the in those three basins I mentioned, um, extensive development of groundwater resources uh, that are considered tributary to the stream flow. So South Platte's the one I'm most familiar with, but but lots of, of wells completed in the river alluvium of the South Platte, so it's directly hydro 
hydraulically, <clears throat> excuse me, connected to the the flow in the river. Okay, and, and I, Dave, if I can just inter- I just I just want to highlight it. I th- I think a very important point, and that is that that you're regulating not just the flows in the stream, but the groundwater as well. That's considered part of they they are looked at kind of holistically. Yes, yeah. yes, that's correct. And uh, in Colorado, there was kind of a, a major piece of water rights legislation passed in 1969 that, that most, most folks refer to as the 69 Act. And it did specifically recognize that, that uh, surface water and, and groundwater connected to that surface water or tributary to it were interconnected and, and directed that they be administered uh, holistically or, or as a, a single resource, not as, as two separate and distinct resources. And so in that 1969 Act, the legislature recognized also that, that uh, especially in the three basins I mentioned, groundwater uh, was a, a very valuable resource. A large economy had already developed around utilization of that groundwater. So they also created what is called an augmentation plan or a plan for augmentation. And, and the, the basic concept behind that plan is that uh, we'll, we'll continue to focus on tributary groundwater, but um, we'll say you have a well that you can use to, to irrigate crops and, and make money off of that. Uh, by pumping that well, you will create impacts to the surface stream, but, but those impacts will not be immediate. They will be delayed just by the time it takes uh, the impacts of your pumping to travel through the porous media of the aquifer. And, and an augmentation plan basically lets a farmer or, or any user uh, determined that time delay in in both volume, uh, timing, and in amount uh, when uh, that impact or those impacts will start reaching the stream. And an augmentation plan uh, simply allows a user with, say, a very junior water right, a We'll, we'll just say a 1955 well, uh, to pump that well even though the, the call on the river or the most senior right, or excuse me, most junior right being able to divert is, we'll say, an 1881 water right. But what, it, what the statute allows is, is for that farmer to, uh, through a court decree that, that set all those parameters in stone in terms of in terms of when the impacts reach the stream and in what volume, to to show the court that he uh, has a different supply or another supply of water that that he can put in the river to replace his impacts to the senior water right to prevent um, any injury or, or any impact to that senior right. So so basically. Uh, it's sort of a trade of water. The farmer may consume, you know, uh, we'll say 100 acre feet of water in our example, and, and that impact will occur to the river over the next year. Uh, well, he, 
whenever his 1950 right is, or 1955 right, excuse me, is, is not in priority, he'll use that other supply to replace the amount of water he consumed that would otherwise uh, injure or negatively impact the senior water rights. So, so it's basically trading or, or using a different supply uh, of, of either senior water right or, or a water right otherwise decreed for, for replacement or augmentation purposes, perhaps a, a water short in a reservoir that, that's at a spot the farmer really doesn't need it to replace those impacts and then in turn uh, pumping his well to supply water where he does need it. And, and the same sort of thing is done uh, by municipalities uh, or subdivisions, uh, it just in, in terms of, of kind of using, trading that water, if you will, or making a supply available where they do need it without uh, necessarily the cost of building a pipeline from the, the reservoir, we'll say, over to their, their development or their place of need. Okay. And on a functional basis, how do they how do they operate? I mean, how is this water tracked? From my non-engineering mind, it just seems incredibly complex to say, okay, I'm going to you know, pump 100 acre feet out of my well and then I'm going to find another source of supply uh, for 100 acre feet over here and and how does that functionally work out? Well, it it functionally works out because we do have uh, a number of different models or methodologies to to determine uh, the delay or, or impacts uh, in time, location, and amount of, of say, that well pumping. Um, and those range from, from purely analytical solutions. Uh, there was one developed, oh, back in the 50s and 60s by a professor named Robert Glover uh, at Colorado State University that's a, an analytical solution. Um, there have also there are also uh, numeric models. Uh, the USGS developed a, a model known as ModFlow a number of years ago that that's also extensively used. But but basically, what you have to feed into those models is um, how far you are from the stream, how easily water flows through the the porous media. Uh, and then how much you're going to pump and, and when you're going to pump it. Um, and, and then, you know, we'll say you, you've set up that you're going to pump 100 gallons a minute for a month uh, and at location X. You can feed that into those uh, solutions, and it will then uh, predict into the future uh, when and where and how much those the impacts of that 100 acre feet uh, or 100 GPM pumping for a month uh, reach the river. And so basically we, uh, we live and die by the science. Uh, we believe those models are, are approximately correct. And, and then uh, once you know when and where your impact and how much your impacts will be, that's when the, uh, the owner lines up his his replacement sources and basically they uh, provide uh, well monthly accounting to us it's, it's water accounting not money accounting but it, it's uh, akin to the same thing they tell us well 
this is how much water I took out. You know, my model tells me I'll have these impacts over the next X amount of time at this location, and here's my replacement sources that will uh, match, uh, or at least match, and they can exceed, but they have to at least match those impacts in time, location, and amount. And so, that, I mean, that's a basic principle. As you get, you're correct, it gets very complicated very quickly because, as you can imagine, uh, the economy of scale for a single farmer doing that is not real attractive. But uh, farmers have have banded together into various units, often based on uh, shares in a mutual ditch company, um, such that that ditch company, for the benefit of its members as a whole, may may create this augmentation plan. And, and there are other water conservancy districts who've done the same thing for their members, uh, you know, hundreds uh, of members pull things together and, and so we do one plan that may cover a thousand wells to uh, to deal with that. And so once I, once I figure out that I am going to be pumping water and I have a junior water right, and so I, I figure out I need an augmentation plan, what, what's the process to get that augmentation plan approved? Um, well, the process is like almost everything water rights related in Colorado. You would uh, prepare an application to the water court for a plan of augmentation. And in that application, um, you'd lay out the basics of your plan, saying, you know, where I want the water, how much I'm going to need, where my replacement is how I'm going to get it to the river, but, you know, basically how your plan will operate. Um, and, and typically most folks will hire a consulting engineer uh, to, to do all that uh, math work and, and then also hire a, a water attorney to, to actually file their application. And so functionally that application is filed with the water court each month the water court produces what's called the water court resume, uh, which is a, a brief summary of each of the cases filed during the previous month. And then folks will have 60 days um, after the end of the month in which an application is filed to file an objection with the water court, a formal objection to that uh, augmentation plan or any other water rights type application filed with the court. So, so functionally how that would work is we'll say um, Farmer A files his application in September. The water court resume would be published uh, by mid-October and then folks will have until November 30th to file a statement of opposition, and, and that's a little bit of a misnomer because even people who may support the application have to file a statement of opposition to gain party status in the case. Um, and then once, once the case has been filed and, and we've gone through that, uh, that resume notice deadline, uh, also, by statute, my office is required to consult with the water court on every application that's filed. And so 
Um, we would then have the opportunity to review the application, provide uh, comments to the water court um, on that application, uh, and then initially, virtually every case is is put before a magistrate uh, that's called, or who is called the water referee. And the referee's duty is to consult with a division engineer and make such investigations as he or she deems necessary. Um, and, and then uh, either grant or deny the water right uh, based on, on that information. And, and currently in Colorado, a case can be before the referee really no more than 18 months. And after 18 months, the case is then referred to the water judge where it, it will then uh, go on to what's called a trial track or, or actually proceed toward towards an actual trial. Now, even, even with that process, um, I would say probably 90% of the cases that are filed in Colorado do not end up in a water court trial. Almost all of them um, reach some sort of, are either issued a decree because the referee has found they can, can operate or um, through negotiations, they reach an out-of-court settlement with all of the objectors that, that satisfies the objectors, their water rights will not be injured. And, and so, so, you know, we do have uh, have a fair number of trials, but um, considering we typically have uh, between, uh, say, 250 and 350 water court cases filed each year, um, you know, almost all of those settle. So, so we only end up with, with a handful of trials uh, each year. Once an augmentation plan has been approved and it gets, you know, implemented, uh, what are some of the common problems that you see with these uh, augmentation plans? Well, uh, I mean, hopefully most of the problems we, we have been worked out through the, uh, through the court process. But, but uh, typically, um, you know, they're, they're not, once we're operating or once the, the users are operating them and reporting them to us, um, you know, sometimes issues can come up where, um, you know, just gathering the information takes uh, the, the uh, operator a little bit longer than expected. So, so the accounting uh, for, for water use and replacement supplies typically is, is due every 30 days. Um, you know, sometimes it takes them a little bit longer to, to get that in, so we have to work with them a little bit on that. Um, some of the other problems we sometimes see are uh, more and more folks are, are going to remote data collection, uh, just as we are, just because, uh, you know, the technology has improved to the point where that is a very reliable method of gathering information. Um, but you still have to go out into the field and verify, you know, what's being reported is, is what's really there. But, you know, due to some issue, we may have had less there or, or uh, something went on that that remote reported data wasn't quite correct. And so then we, 
uh, work with the uh, the operators to try to correct that and make sure there was no injury. Um, if there was injury, figure out a way to to if possible mitigate that injury or replace that injury. So so once once it's decreed for the most part, the the, the operational problems come in just managing a complex system that occasionally, you know, you just have those unavoidable glitches in. Sure. What, what, how about new developments and augmentation plans? Are, are these models that, that are the basis for them? Are they continuously being improved? You know, what are some of the, the things that are kind of uh, on the cutting edge of these augmentation plans? Well, there, there's always um, something new being done. I mean, certainly uh, the, the basic models uh, probably are, are not uh, not being in, changed a lot as we go along. I, I think the, the mathematical principles behind them uh, are pretty sound. Um, what we're we're seeing uh, is more either uh, you know just more information being gathered where uh, the we know the aquifer parameters a little bit better than we used to, or or we've refined uh, something in a model. To, to give us more information uh, or, or more precise information. Uh, so, so we kind of see some continuous improvement along those lines. Um, you know, occasionally we do have somebody come up with, with what may be a new or, or, or perhaps a novel approach that, that we haven't seen before. But, but for the most part, it's just Gathering a little bit more data, trying to to take advantage of technology. Certainly, um, you know, SCADA systems. More and more folks are are using those, and so so that's that's helping a little bit. So, but but in terms of the actual, you know, physical model or, or numeric model that's being used, those are are not not changing all that much anyway. Okay. And is there anything about these augmentation plans that I've kind of failed to ask you? Is there is there an important point that I've that I've missed when we've talked about these? Well, um, I'd say one of the the developments or, or points that's kind of evolved over the last probably ten or so years um, has been the use of what's called a projection tool, where it, where um, the, the impacts from the pumping, uh, especially of wells, uh, are projected a number of years out into the future, and, and uh, the applicant has to, to have sufficient water uh, today or, or project uh, very reliable sources are available uh, to replace all of those future impacts. Uh, and typically, uh, are often the objectors uh, want that impact to be replaced, even under a maybe not a worst case scenario, but but a really bad case scenario, say a, a series of dry years or an extended drought period, and, and so uh, that kind of move to that projection tool ha has really um, put more pressure on the augmentation plans to. Uh, at least some of the larger ones to continue to look for ways to replace uh, replace water or, or find new sources that may be available to them. Uh, 
that's probably been uh, the most recent development that, that I don't think we touched on before. Okay. Well, that's that's fascinating stuff. And Dave, you've been absolutely terrific talking to us, giving us a background on Colorado water law and and getting you know a deeper dive on these augmentation plans. So I really appreciate your time. And uh, I'm sure the listeners do because they're the ones who asked about getting this type of uh, content on. Okay. So, well, it was certainly my pleasure, Dave. Oh, you bet. Uh, I was just going to say, where can folks go to find out more about you and the uh, Division of Water Resources? Certainly. Uh, they can, can go to our website. We've got quite a bit of information there, uh, and that's simply the word water dot, the word state dot co dot us. Terrific. Well, Dave, you've, again, you've been fantastic. Really appreciate your time, and we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good, Dave. All Thank right. you very much. You bet. Bye. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dave Nettles of the Colorado Division of Water Resources, especially you, Wally, from Colorado. Thanks again for making the suggestion. Well, here are a couple takeaways from the interview with Dave. In Colorado, the state is divided into seven different water districts, each with a separate special water court. And to perfect a water right, you need to get the court to establish it. Now, I'm using lay terms here, and I'm not trying to convey specific legal terms of art. If you want or need legal advice on issues concerning water, please consult with a qualified lawyer. So, as it turns out, you didn't have to listen all the way to the end to hear at least some of the disclaimer, but listen on anyway. Uh, My next takeaway is that all water is regulated, surface water and groundwater, and this recognizes the fact that groundwater and surface water are interconnected. When viewed in context, it also could help explain why California has had so many concerns raised with its groundwater and why California just passed legislation last month that will limit groundwater pumping eventually. This is interesting because if you listen to session two of the Water Values podcast, Jack Whitman identifies the lack of data on groundwater pumping in that episode um, in California as a major hindrance to proper water planning. Finally, my third takeaway is that the scientific models used to create and administer the water rights in the water system in Colorado have been in place for years and are seeing incremental improvements as technology and creative approaches are introduced. The certainty associated with those models, however, paves the way for the augmentation plans that Dave discussed and the other water rights and associated issues to be proven before the water court. Well, you can check out the show notes for this session at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 33. And please don't be bashful and let me know what interested you about the interview by leaving a comment on the show notes or by emailing me at david at You can also tweet at me at DTM1993 and you can tweet about the podcast using hashtag watervalues. And don't forget to rate and please review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast directories. And please don't forget to tell your friends and colleagues about the podcast and also to sign up for the Water Values newsletter which can be done at thewatervalues.com. Well, look for me at the Global Water Intelligence American Water Summit on October 23rd and 24th in Houston. Again, would love to meet up with you at at that conference. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it.
You've been listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning into the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Colorado and Indiana, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. And information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.